We're reading from Colossians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. And thus says the word of the Lord. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you, and for those at Laodicea, and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding, and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments, for though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Our Father, we come before you acknowledging that your words that are here are of value to our lives today. And so we ask that as we look into your word this morning that our eyes may be opened to the truths that you have for us from here. We realize that your word is rich and that you are working in each of us for your purposes, for your glory, as we will see even through this text. And so, Father, we ask once again that you would allow for us to glean from the passage that is before us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I was wondering how hot it was going to be up here. Um, I know it is kind of warm today, and uh, Pastor Dennis was reminding me yesterday, you don't have to do what you did last summer and uh, preach an hour plus. So um, I told him, I said, I think it was as hot as it is, once I see you drifting off to sleep, I will be done, okay? So, um, but I, I thank God for the opportunity to be able to open the Word of God, um, one of the things that I think about in this passage here is that um, we have been looking at the book of Colossians now for about a month or so, and as we have been reading through chapter 1 and now working our way into chapter 2, the table has been set for today's message. And it is provided really kind of like the, it's the end piece here of the introduction of Paul's letter um, to the churches of Colossae and Laodicea. Um, I've entitled our message today, An Unbreakable Solidarity. Uh, one of the things that I would ask you to do is just turn to chapter 4 for a moment and to look at verse 7. And it says there that Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. And I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. One of the things that I kind of think about is I can imagine that as this letter was delivered to the church of Colossae, that Tychicus was probably the one who ended up reading this. 
Uh, he's the one who's going to explain things. It is going to be Tychicus who comes directly from Paul who had been serving with him, and it will be his job then to be able to read this, most likely. The passage that we are studying today reminds me of what it is like, though, to be part of a team or to be part of something greater than just, you know, ourselves individually. And oftentimes, I think in life, it's easy for us to kind of think individually, right? We don't always think about, hey, what's good for everybody? Um, although I will say, moms, you probably have a, a, a constant thought in the back of your head about, I have to work for the team. But I think like everybody else, moms, we always think too, I need something for myself. And what can I do to carve out something here? But I think that this passage here really kind of brings us back to a place where we begin to think more like a team. Because it's about being part of God's supreme plan. And I mean supreme with a capital S. Being part of the supreme plan requires an intensity, though, that sometimes we lack because we choose to live the Christian life sometimes on our own terms. In today's passage, we're going to unpack an intensity that Paul is describing here in this final part of his introduction to the Colossians. As we know, Paul is a masterful orator. He knew how to go into a lot of different situations, a lot of different places, and he knew how to be able to present the gospel. And so if you kind of take your time reading through this, you're going to see that a lot of things are repeated from chapter 1 in these five verses in chapter 2. And we'll see that in just a few minutes. By way of illustration, I was thinking about the intensity of what an unbreakable solidarity looks like. And so let me share this illustration with you. It actually has uh, from something that happened this past week to me and my son Joshua. Um, I was picking him up after his football workouts, and we stopped at In-N-Out. I haven't told my wife that we stopped at In-N-Out, but she probably figured that out at some point. And we just stopped by to pick up a quick lunch and use these gift cards that I had in the car. And so when we got there, we placed our order. We were going through the drive through And we got up to the first window to pay. And as we got up to the first window to pay, the cashier told us that the people in the car in front of us had paid for our meal. And that this chain had been going on for several cars. And then, of course, the cashier asked me, would you like to pay for the car behind you? Well, I said to him, uh, here are the gift cards I was going to use. How much will remain on the bill? But at the same time, there was kind of this intensity within me of like, there's this chain going on, and I wonder what I can do about this. Well, he said, eight cents were left on the bill. I said, here's a quarter. Keep the change. So I gave him a quarter, and I moved through to pick up our food, and I waved to the driver in front of me for his kind gesture, and I said to Josh, you know, our, our order cost more than what I paid for the lady behind us. So after we received our food and we pulled forward to leave the drive-through lane, 
we had to wait for several cars to pass by, and they were exiting the parking lot there at uh, In-N-Out. And by now, the lady that had been behind us, she'd pulled up right behind me. And our eyes met through the rearview mirror. I just kind of looked back to see how she was doing. She got a free meal, right? And as I looked back, I could see her waving her finger. No, you should not have done that. And I thought, this is great. I love it. There's nothing she can do about it, right? And so I stuck my hand out the window, and I waved hello, and I gave her a thumbs up. And as I looked back through the mirror again, I could see her start to smile, and she waved back. I don't know if she continued the chain of pain for the person behind her, but as I drove away, I began to think about this. Who was the first person who started this chain of kindness? Perhaps it started with two people who knew each other, and maybe the first chose to show some love for the people behind them that they knew. And so maybe we were the third person in line. Or perhaps I was number eight to receive this kindness, and the change started out of utter kindness to a complete stranger. And the cashier, of course, was very instrumental in this whole chain here of keeping it going by asking if we would like to do the same. Regardless, the intensity of knowing that someone else had paid for my food order propelled me to reciprocate within my own means for someone I didn't know and for the pure joy of seeing how this person behind me would react. It just kind of struck me how powerful that moment was of when the cashier said, would you like to do the same for the person behind you? You have to make a decision. Beloved, this passage has all of this and so much more in it. And today's passage has an intensity that illustrates sacrificing and struggling out of love for Christ for the sake of others. It also shows us the proposition that I would ask you to consider this morning. And the proposition that I have for you this morning is that the Christian's journey requires a heart's love for Christ and fellow believers. Once again, the proposition is that the Christian's journey requires a heart's love for Christ and fellow believers. Our spiritual journey did not come to an end when we believed that Christ redeemed us and justified us. And for the purpose of context, I, I want you to know this, that um, as we look in Colossians chapter 1, verses 21 and 22, and like I said earlier, this is kind of some things that are repeated here, so we're going to be looking back at chapter 1 quite a bit. It says, and you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. When you see this, you're like, okay, this is all God's work taking place, right? He's the one that did all of this. Your journey did not end when you first believed by faith. 
And know that sometimes people sort of talk about, you know, there's a journey to faith. Well, this is all God's work, by the way. That's, that's what Scripture tells us, that it's all God's work to get you into his fold. Scripture is very clear about the fact that for us, that we were enemies of the cross. And so, in fact, what I am proposing to you today is that your journey actually began after he called you, after he cleansed you, when he made you alive together with Christ. That is when our journey begins. What we are looking at today are the purposes of God after he saves us through faith. Colossians, or Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Or Colossians 1.28 that says, him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. This is Paul and his team saying this. For this purpose, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. This is what Paul wanted for every Gentile believer. So let's move to the first verse of chapter 2. It says, for I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. Paul is pointing out to the Colossians and Laodiceans that he is united in heart with them. Even though he is not with them and has not met them, he is united in heart with them. The first thing you notice here is that uh, Paul is pointing out that he wants them to know how great his struggle is for these followers, these Christ followers. You know, Paul is concerned that these brothers and sisters know and understand how great his struggle is for them. And at first glance, it might seem that Paul is boasting about his great efforts for the churches in Colossae and Laodicea. Or it might seem that Paul is trying to gain some sort of admiration or appreciation for everything that he is doing. But we know that is not how Paul thinks of himself, right? He doesn't think that way. Instead, Paul wants these believers to know and appreciate how God is working to bring them to maturity in their Christian faith. That's why it starts... This first verse of chapter 2, for I want you to know. I want you to know this. Not because it's about him, but because it is about what Christ is doing. It is about what God's plan is. Paul hinted at this in chapter 1, verse 23, where it says, If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. In some translations, it uses the word servant. Paul had never been with them, but he is reminding them that God appointed him to minister to them in whatever way possible to keep them 
in the gospel. It was his job, and he sees this, that God is using him to come into their lives. And so he wants them to know, this is not about me. I don't want, it's not for you to look at me. And this was Tychicus' job, was to be able to explain this to them. That, hey, understand, God has a plan, a supreme plan here. You also see in the text that Paul considers his ministry, though, a struggle. In the Greek text, the word used here is agon, for the word struggle. Well, agon is the word which we get the word agony from. And so, if you just think about this for a moment, and we understand what Paul is saying, he wants them to remember and appreciate how much he has agonized over these believers. Paul is tying this back into chapter 1, verses 25 and 26, where it says, For the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister, according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. You see, Paul is expressing that he was appointed as a steward of the gospel to the Gentiles. And herein lies Paul's first struggle. He worked strenuously, and he endured persecution to proclaim the gospel to them. He knew that he was appointed. We've looked at this, that in, uh, it says in the book of Acts that, hey, I have chosen Paul. The reason I've chosen him is that he's going to do my work for me, and he is going to face all sorts of struggles, persecutions. He will suffer for my name's sake. When I think about that, I think about the fact that, you know, God's sovereign hand was over Paul knowing that Paul will endure. He will not quit. I think about it this way too, in fact. That sometimes we might talk to one another and ask about how things are going. And, you know, what's, how, how are things going for you this week? And we might have a whole list of things that, oh man, it's been a hard week. I was doing all this, 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 and that. And it sounds like it's been a struggle. But that's not the type of struggle here. Paul's not here to boast about his own life. But he is here to say, listen, I struggled for you guys. I want you to know this. Not because this is something that I chose to do. No. This is God's plan to grow you. It started by him first proclaiming the gospel. And so Paul describes this as his great struggle for the believers that he had never seen. And he realized that he might never see them as he sat in a jail in Rome. And he agonized over them about how he might minister to them. Of course, we know that Paul had a team of people that traveled with him. Even while he was in Rome, he had people that were coming to him, and he was sending them back out after he was done training them. But I'm sure that as he's hearing about the believers in Colossae and Laodicea and other believers that he's never met, he's agonizing over them. And the second way that he agonized over them was through prayer. Listen to how Paul and his team prayed as noted in chapter 1, verses 9 through 12. And so, 
from the day we heard, that is about their salvation, we have not ceased to pray for you. But the question becomes, what did they pray for? How did they pray? So it goes on to say this, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Wow. I'm like, okay, that's a pretty heavy prayer. That's a lot of things to be praying for. But one of the things that it tells me is this, is that he is praying for them and leading his team to pray in such a way that he's asking God, do these things in their life, and how can this be accomplished? It's not just a general prayer that sometimes we like to pray. And Lord, we ask that everything goes well today. Be with them. No. There's a specific way in which he is praying here. There's one more passage for us to look at about prayer in the book of Colossians. If you'll turn to chapter 4, verse 12. There's a brother named Epaphras who has been ministering to them there. And Epaphras was was the brother that Paul had had placed there to, and he's actually one one of the Colossians himself, but he's the guy who's responsible for opening the word to them and teaching them. And look how Epaphras, while he was with Paul, it says, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Heropolis. So, this struggle that we're looking at here that comes from the gospel being proclaimed, that comes from prayer that is taking place, thinking through how can we pray? What should we be praying for? Paul and his team, was specifically Epaphras, who had been struggling on behalf of the Colossians, Paul seems to be saying that they made it a point to pray for the Colossians and Laodiceans but it was likely that they prayed for all the Gentile believers. For those that they knew and those that they didn't know. And they prayed in specific terms. I would imagine that we kind of understand this in terms of a prayer life requires discipline, doesn't it? I think we have to ask the question, How is my prayer life for others? It takes discipline and effort to pray the way Paul prayed. Paul did not use general prayers to cover all the believers, like I said. Instead, he knew the different struggles that were in the various regions, and he prayed against opponents 
of the Christ-centered gospel. He anticipated that the deceivers would try pulling them away from the gospel. And this is why this letter was written. And as we will see in the coming weeks, we will see how these believers were instructed to become mature in Christ. Well, the second point that Paul is making is that he wants them to be united in heart. And three things will happen. He wants to see their hearts encouraged. He wants them to be knit together and to reach all the riches of full assurance and understanding. If we look at verse 2 there, it says that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. So what does Paul mean by putting these three things together? All three of these things seem to happen together in the body of Christ. Hearts encouraged. Refers to the contentedness and satisfaction that believers can have in their relationship with God. Literally, when he uses the word heart here, it's like the middle of you. So he's not talking about like in terms of, you know, like being uh, super spiritual here, but rather that there's a contentedness within you in knowing Christ, being satisfied in that. I think of this a little bit differently sometimes that, you know, our encouragement sometimes that we look for is through other things in life, isn't it? I mean, sometimes it's like, how can I be encouraged to keep on, maybe I need to reward myself with something. It's easy to do that, isn't it? But what he is saying here is your contentedness is simply in Christ. Be encouraged by this. That's your encouragement and your support. The question becomes, how do you get that? Because it's supposed to come by being with the church. Being knit together is the next phrase that is there. When you are knit together with the body of Christ, and in fact it's using this illustration of the physical body that is being connected to the head, which is Christ. And so the idea is that as the different parts of the body come together and are connected to Christ himself, there's a contentedness in us that we can provide for one another. We can be encouraged that way. But all the while, we're still coming together, being connected to Christ. It's a beautiful picture that is there. And so when he goes to the next phrase, and he says to, uh, about the riches and the fullness, uh, full assurance, right? All of a sudden, you feel like, you know, as, as I'm connected to Christ, there is a rich feeling of saying, you know what? I have an assurance. I know who I am in and part of. I'm part of Christ. As we were singing Blessed Assurance this morning, it talked about that we will not be shaken, we will not be moved. Because we are in Christ, 
who is unmovable. And that's what he's calling us to do, is to remember this that he's saying to the Colossians, look, I want you guys to be encouraged in your hearts. I want you to be knit together as part of the body that's connected to the head so that you have this full assurance and understanding that can be part of your lives here. I love the fact that there are three strands here that Paul is speaking of and that are rooted in an uncompromising belief in Jesus Christ. No doubt this is what he wanted for the Colossians. And similarly for us, when we have Christ at the center of our lives and our church family supports us, it's so much easier to be assured that Jesus is enough no matter what the circumstances are in our lives. And I would just remind you of this, that the Holy Spirit is at work when the believers are together. He, he works within us. There are times that you and I don't know, like, uh, what is going on with my brother or sister next to me? And you're in a conversation with them. And you're thinking through, and you might be saying, you know, Lord, help me to have the right words, Right? to encourage, to build up. And I want to remind you of this, that the Holy Spirit is working. It is his job to be that comforter, and he dwells within us. And so this beautiful picture works because of the fact that we have the counselor who is within us. Verse 2 ends with the phrase, the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. And then verse 3 continues, In whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge? What we have here, what it looks like, is what it looks like to be united with Christ. And so, we're looking at this next phrase here, united with Christ. The mystery that is mentioned here is Christ, obviously. Okay, it says it right there. God's plan was unveiled in the fullness of time, to bring the Gentile nations unto himself. I, I was kind of thinking through this, like, it's interesting that the Bible uses this phrase of the mystery, right? Because for us, we don't see it that way so much. Because we live in the time period now where the mystery has been revealed. And everyone can hear about Jesus Christ. But if you lived before... There is this mystery because it is God's people, the Israelites, who are looking to Jehovah, to Yahweh, and they are saying, okay, he is our God, right? Uh, and he says, you are my people. But there was also this promise that had been given to the father of this nation, right? That through you, Abraham, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And so throughout the Old Testament, and until Christ is crucified and raises, raised from the dead, what we have is this mystery of how is God going to bring the nations to himself? And now we see that mystery is revealed. 
And perhaps you have been following to see, like, what is going on with the nations of the world today? Is that mystery revealed out there? I was recently just kind of looking through things to see this. Like, and I was, I was kind of thinking, like, this is amazing to think now that looking forward, that the idea now is that there will probably be more Christians that are now throughout the rest of the world, and Christianity seems to be ramping up, and that looking statistically at things, that Africa looks like the place where the gospel, where Christianity will flourish the most in the years to come. Meanwhile, here at home, it will be just the opposite. That mystery will need to be revealed here, won't it? We will need to work at opening up and saying, here is the mystery, Christ. In case you're wondering, like, does, you know, in the Old Testament, what does it say about this mystery? Job chapter 28, verses 20 and 21 I love this. I was looking through and I saw this and I was like, wow. Job says, from where then does wisdom come from? And where is the place of understanding? It is hidden from the eyes of all living. This mystery, who is Christ, has to be revealed. It's not easily just like, wow, there it is. In the Old Testament, it was hidden. But now it has been revealed, and we have a job to do with this. Paul wants his listeners to know that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Harry Ironside puts it this way. He said, we can confidently say it is not necessary to go elsewhere. That is, to investigate human systems and philosophies, to find an explanation of the mystery of the universe and the relationship of the creator to his creatures. In Christ, every question is answered. Every perplexity made clear and every doubt dissolved. Why turn aside to the idle speculations when God has spoken in his Son? And this is the central message that Paul wants everyone to know. We must be united with Christ. This was God's plan from the beginning. And what we see here is that as Paul is going to move further through this letter, he is going to reveal the fact that, hey, listen, there are other thoughts that are out there that they're trying to get you to think about, you know, here is Christ, but add this. Or here is Christ, but take away this. There's going to be all sorts of fancy arguments. We face them today, don't we? So, as it says here, why turn aside to idle speculations when God has spoken in his Son? Lastly, verses 4 and 5, they remind us to be united in faith. 
It says in the passage, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Paul reiterates his purpose in writing to them and challenges the Colossians and the Laodiceans to remain faithful and unmovable in their Christ-centered faith. Paul wants them to know that there will be elegant and persuasive speeches that will try to tug them slightly to the right or slightly to the left. So Paul reminds them that he is with them in spirit. Even though he can't be present with them, the Spirit of God had united both Paul and the Colossians to Christ. Just think about that. They're, they're united to Christ. They've never met each other. They don't know each other in that sense. But they do know Christ. He was convinced that their salvation was genuine. And so he would continue to rejoice in what was happening if they did two things. One, the first one is to keep their good doctrine in order. And the second, to not shift from the hope of the gospel. Because they all lived in Christ, Paul was present in spirit with them and struggling on their behalf. And Paul's great heart sizzled for them with a great intensity. And I want to share just a few concluding thoughts with you today. I think that it's important for us to remember that we need to stay firm in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, sometimes we hear things and we take our eyes off of Jesus and we begin to focus on other things that sound good but complementary. In other words, it's not the pure gospel. It's things added in. Sometimes it's just about, hey, what are the things that I'm doing that sort of are my substitute for Christ? And, and they can be good things. But, you know, we can get caught up in those things of like, you know, I just, let me just kind of be doing these things, and sort of becomes our religion. And this is something Paul's going to warn against here. It also can, as I said earlier, be Jesus, you know, as it's plus anything, it could be Jesus minus certain things. We have plenty of cults around us, don't we? Cult beliefs. I was reminded of the fact that uh, when we were in Korea, last month, actually I guess two months ago now, back in May, was, was asking the pastors there about, so are there cult beliefs that are around you that you guys are finding? Oh, yes, absolutely. It's everywhere, right? And as we talked a little bit, we just talked about how important it is to bring the believers to maturity in Christ, to keep them focused on the gospel. You know, sometimes I think that, you know, it's easy for us to even think about it this way, that as we, 
Think about churches even. I mean, what is the central piece that should be happening within the church? It's the preaching of God's word. It's opening the scriptures. It is the pro proclamation of Jesus Christ, the gospel itself, the mystery that has been revealed. But you might go places and, you know, you're going to hear various things. And people might say, oh, you know, I really get inspired by that inspirational talk there. But no mention of the cross. No mention of Christ. Second, how do you view yourself in the body of Christ? The passage today reminded us that we need to be centered in Christ, to have spiritually healthy relationships with one another. I cannot urge you enough to become knit together. Paul says it right here, and this is a miraculous thing that happens for believers. We can get together for a lot of other things. You can have a chain of people paying for one another, but at some point that's going to end. But let me tell you something. The fellowship that we get to have with one another is something that does not have to come to an end. And in fact, there will be a day when it will be ongoing. What a great day that will be where we will sit together and we will just rejoice over what God has done. And our fellowship will continue. It is hard sometimes. I know it is. We've got busy lives and things that are going on. We have to carve out time. We have to make time for the body of Christ. Because that's how you encourage one another. That's how you help each other to stay focused and centered on the gospel itself. If you have been neglecting the body of Christ, I want to urge you, make time. Be purposeful. If you have to struggle for it, struggle for it. It will take discipline. But it will be your joy. It will be your strength, in fact. And last, are you rejoicing with the body of Christ over the spiritual maturity you see in others? If not, maybe it's time to start praying a little more fervently. Parents, I know we pray for our children. And some of us, we're at that stage in life where, you know, they're not little anymore. They have their minds of their own. And they choose things. And all you can do is pray anyway, right? You hope you have an opportunity to be able to speak. But you will always have the opportunity to pray. And yes, you might have to do it in the middle of the night. You might be like me sometimes, like, I'm having trouble sleeping. But there's some people I need to be praying for right now. So spend that time there. You might be sitting somewhere and waiting. 
But you might have to just also say, I've got to set aside some time where I can just be alone to pray, and here's my list. I want to urge you to consider that. We are going to approach the Lord's table here this morning. And just as I've kind of been thinking about some of these things here, I want to remind you of this. That the Lord's table here is for all those who have placed their hope in Christ alone. Christ alone as their Savior. We've spent some time looking at the mystery that came in the fullness of time. It is Christ. We have also seen that God desires that we mature in Christ. And so we're going to take a moment right now, just a moment here to reflect on living and how we are living. Are we living in a manner worthy of the Lord? And so if you are not, I'm going to give you an opportunity to be able just to speak to the Lord. If you are, I want to invite you to be able to come to the table in just a few moments to take the elements. But I want to remind you of this, that the Lord's table is for the believer. It is. We don't want to abuse it, though, as Scripture teaches us. And so we want to make sure, though, that we approach it in a worthy manner, as Scripture tells us. I'm going to ask our musicians to go ahead and come forward. And um, in just a moment, uh, we will have you come down through the middle aisle, starting with the first rows here. and Then you'll just make your way back around the outside aisles there. And our servers will come forward. Would you bow your heads and take a moment to reflect and to pray right now? Father, we thank you for, for Christ. As we have uh, noted, the gospel tells us that we were enemies. Uh, we were deep in our own sins, living lives apart. But God, you are merciful and you are gracious. You are kind. And in your great mercy, you reached out to us and you have purified us. You've cleansed us through the blood of Jesus Christ. And now we have the privilege of being called your sons and your daughters. We recognize that your son Jesus was perfect. He was your son. And this great mystery has been revealed to us and now what we have is the opportunity to constantly be in communion together with you because of him. So we thank you for what Jesus has done on our behalf. We remember the fact that he is, his body was broken for us. His blood was spilled out for us. And so this morning, Father, if we have been living in an unworthy manner, 
we confess that before you. We ask that you would cleanse us of that unrighteousness, as 1 John 1.9 says, because you are faithful and just to forgive us. And so we ask that you would help us to be in fellowship once again with Christ. And even with one another, Father, as the Scriptures teach us, that there should not be anything like that that is keeping us grievances from one another. But we ask, Father, that you would break those barriers within us. That if we do have any grievances against each other, that we would repent of those things and clear those up with our brothers and sisters. And Lord, that is how we want to approach your table this morning. We ask that uh, as we receive the elements now, that you would encourage our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.